Welcome to We Are Scared, the podcast where we dissect and dismember your favorite horror movie. Let's go, girls. Hi. Hey. Uh, happy, happy Wednesday. Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, the day of the week. Two it's, days it's to go. It's day. Two yeah. days to go. Almost Friday. I don't like this ruse. I know, I don't either. <laughs> it couldn't have been Wednesday. It's Tuesday, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's almost, well, it's almost Wednesday. It's yes. like pretty late on Tuesday. But if you're listening to this, it's Wednesday. <laughs> it's, yeah, literally could be 2024 by now. But thanks, thanks for tuning in. I am just dying to know what the heck is scaring you guys this week. Shall I go first? Yes, please, Annika. Uh, AI. <coughs> hey. Hey. What are you guys scared of? This week. Camille. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just, it's, I'm, it's, uh, it's, it's Maddie Healy and Taylor Swift. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> no one's surprised. No one's surprised. How many people send me that? Like ten. You were the first, Annika. You Hell? were the first. Wait, Wait I'm, I'm shocked. Impressed. I was like, I'm sending this to her just in case, but I'm sure she's already seen it. No, I, I can't believe I knew that information before. <laughs> I know, I know. No, she I, was in Paris. Yeah, I was in Paris. I opened your message first and screamed, and my mom got really mad at me. <laughs> Why is it that I get a sick delight out of being the thing that changed your life forever? This is like, like huge. It's can you huge. say more about because I know it's huge for you, but I don't yeah. know exactly why. I think that it's like it's two celebrities that I care so much about. Two people whose communities, like their friends I'm very invested in too, like Boy Genius opening for Taylor Swift, Maddie Healy playing guitar for Phoebe Bridgers, opening for Taylor Swift. It's just it's like all of my hyperfixations oh, culminating in one thing. I'm just trying to understand what the exact fear is about. I thought, I initially thought you were saying your fear was that they would date each other. Is that what you're dating? That's what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. I'm so sorry. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my God. I should have sent it to both of you. It's okay. Because you should have known that you were going to walk into this. I I should have known, yes. (laughs) like, she's going through it. I'm sorry, Camille. No, I'm happy. That Maddie, like they're together. Okay. I'm happy about it. It's just the implications are terrifying. Mm, you know yeah yeah like yeah the tickets are gonna be really hard to get oh god (laughs) yeah i can't even imagine okay anyways okay the saga continues outside of my window in the back alley of my apartment and the man who was on my fire escape last week on a ladder and then on a plank over the weekend is now just fully kneeling before my window and i is facing your window what I mean, yes, like he is facing the window and into my kneeling, bedroom, and he's, and he's kneeling. kneeling. And I he's don't know naked? what. No, <laughs> no, but I am. That's the problem. Is that like oh. I come out of the shower and I like need to go into my room because my clothes are there. I asked this I, last week, but is he cute? I, I really, sincerely, I have not been looking. Okay. that hard you know what I mean like I'm just kind of like oh my god there are yeah. eyes that I can see which mean those eyes can see me and I'm here in a towel and I You're need to put mode. clothes on and there's just a man right there oh my god it's terrifying that's scary yeah this is the sound that has been occurring because they've been walking on the wall right outside of my window <sighs> 
this that's video Leatherface. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It literally hey. sounds like a chainsaw. It does. Yeah, that's my um, a repeat for you. What a scary week. It's been. really a scary week. And it's only Wednesday. Tuesday. Do you think we'll ever have a week where we're scared of the same thing? Probably. It's going to sync up like our periods in a way, I'm sure. <laughs> right? Isn't that how that works? Well, I mean, I feel like there are... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have just a, a great conversation for you all about a film called Black Christmas. I just love that I had not actually heard about this movie before we started this project and I am so thrilled that we watched it. It's heartbreaking to me for reasons that will be revealed in this episode, but I do love it from the bottom of my heart yeah, as well. I think I'm gonna watch it on Christmas. Yeah, me too. Christmas horror. A new Christmas tradition. We have a wonderful, beautiful, kind, thoughtful, spectacular, Host. one of my favorite people Host. hosting this episode, Annika. Hello, welcome to We Are Scared. We go into a pretty, I would say, significant amount of detail on the plot in this episode, but if you'd like a more full synopsis, please listen to our tandem synopsis episode. I'm not going to give too much of an introduction to this one. I think we'll just dive in. Black Christmas is a 1974 Canadian horror film. It was written by A. Roy Moore. It's directed by Bob Clark, who notably also did A Christmas Story, which he directed and co-wrote. This movie has been cited as being an inspiration for Halloween. And in contrast with Texas Chainsaw, we see that this cast has a little bit more name brand recognition there. Olivia Hussey plays Jess, and she was just coming off of her role as Juliet in the 1968 Romeo and Juliet. Margot Kidder plays Barb, and she was Lois Lane in the original Superman films. We have Kier, I might be mispronouncing his name, Kier D'Elia, who plays Peter. He was astronaut David Bowman in 2001 A Space Odyssey. And then we have Andrea Martin, who plays Phyllis. Stacked cast. I know, truly. I wanted to ask both of you what your relationship is with horror movies that take place at sorority houses. Wow, I love that question. question. (laughs) I think gender is so much bigger in this movie than it was in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I love that in this movie, the women are so progressive and so empowered and they do speak up for themselves and for 1974 in ways that are shocking. I was trying to parse together what this film is saying about gender and women and I wasn't exactly sure especially because of the year that it was made and being male created and written and being a horror movie. When I think about sorority horror films, I think of like sororities as both a space for, in quotes, progressive relationships between women and then also deep regression of bad feminism (laughs) with the abortion pregnancy discussion and the way that men are relating to the women in this film, I was a little bit confused on if these women are empowered. They're having sex and they're having these conversations and they're pushing back on on men and stuff. And is that, but then they're getting killed. Like, what does that mean? That is such an interesting question to reckon with, especially because this is a film that was written and directed by men. And like you said, it takes place in 1974. But I do think ultimately, I think that this is an empowering film for women because... Yes, they are sexually active, 
but their relationship with their own sexuality is not exploited mm -hmm. in the film directly. Mm -hmm. We don't see them having sex. We don't see them portrayed in this way that I think sorority women are almost always portrayed in films like this, where they are dressed in a very male gazy way and very promiscuous mm -hmm. and we only talk about men. I yeah. feel like we have some very fully fleshed out women, which I wasn't necessarily expecting. I was certainly immediately struck by how much depth each of the women in this movie have. None of them are superficially portrayed in any moment. Somehow we understand the people that they are, like the sort of things that they reckon with all the time, and how they deal with men. And I loved that was a part of this portrayal yeah. of these women too is so much of their character came out when they were confronted with men and even within their own relationships with each other. What I really loved about it mm -hmm. is that every single man in this movie is absolutely useless. Like none of them actually are uh, good at doing anything. They can't protect these women. They keep yeah. falling short of being able to rise to the occasion. Yeah. In the end, it's just the women who have to deal with it themselves. It's I will take that as an opportunity to dive into our four core sorority women. We have Barb, Phil, Claire, and Jess. To your point, Camille, their archetypes here are very interesting. I kind mm -hmm. of think of Barb and Claire as being more quintessential horror women who are a little bit more on the extreme of the like Madonna whore dichotomy. Barb is immediately drinking really heavily, is a little bit more outspoken, a little bit more crass than the other women. And Claire is really on the opposite end of that spectrum. She is hyper innocent and very reserved, or at least that's how we experience her. And then Phil and Jess, to me, seem to be the core friends. It's interesting because Claire dies first. I expected Barb to be murdered first. And I think what's also so interesting, which I loved, is a lot of the murders happen off screen or the camera is not showing you exactly what's this, happening. This is actually what I think is really interesting about the foundation of slasher movies being built on things like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and this movie because they're not really that gory. And I actually love in both of them this too. What is really frightening is that they leave so much to your imagination. Yeah. We never see Billy. We never yeah. see who really is doing all of this. We just see his eye. That's all we get. Yeah. And it's so terrifying in the moment that we do and so completely jarring. I think they did that really well in this movie. Something that I watched about it said, you as the audience can imagine the scariest thing. It's not something we can show you. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree. And I think it was really effective. And I think that there's something really shocking about all of the women's unknowing proximity to violence throughout this film. Billy, the killer, is inside the house the whole time. The murders wow. are taking place inside of the house, but the other women who aren't aware of this yet are just living their lives. We get the first call from the moaner. The phone rings, Jess picks up. She says, it's him again, the moaner. So this is something this, these women are used to. The women all gather together and they just listen to this really disturbing, provocative phone call. So I'm curious what your impressions are of that first phone call that we get from the moaner. I am a huge fan of a menacing phone in mm. movies. I, I love the eeriness of just the phone rings. It's just an audio cue and your tense is all hell because you're just like, whatever is bad in this movie is on the other side of that phone call. I loved that. 
again of the fact that this was 1974 and how we've mentioned before that horror movies are just taken up at this time as an opportunity to showcase a rebellion against the mainstream culture of America and especially certain social elements that are just worthy of opposing. I think it's just so vulgar in so many ways and I think that comes out in this phone call. It's a very good start to the film and I think in Bob's character a lot of the time. And also in in Jess, who like continues to stand up for herself and her rights as a woman throughout the movie. I think all of those things, especially for 1974, the way they speak about sex, even the Mona on this phone call, is it's such an affront, I can imagine, to like what the culture was at the time. It turns you on in another way uh, to a social awareness. It was horrible to listen to. It evoked something that I didn't expect going into this movie. Mm-hmm. I was sitting there, again, trying to eat my little dinner. Oh, no. <laughs> Absolutely disgusted. And you don't see it, you just hear it. It's what your imagination creates, this visceral, deeply disturbing commentary and these noises and this violence coming from the phone these graphic words and sounds and you don't know who it is you don't know what they're doing as they're saying these things and making these noises this call lasts a kind of excruciatingly long time we are not given the opportunity to disengage and look away finally at the end of this phone call in a completely normal voice he says i'm going to kill you and hangs up Claire then tells Barb that she shouldn't provoke him. It says that town girl was raped a few weeks ago. I feel like this is the first moment in the film that we're really introduced to just how scary this moment in time is for women. There are these stories throughout the movie that pop up all over the place. And I think it's left really ambiguous about whether or not Billy or the killer is the one who's committing these murders or if it's just like what masculinity is doing at the time. So then we are introduced to Mrs. Mack who is a house mother. What did you think of Mrs. Mack? Oh my God. I thought she was great. I hated her. <laughs> oh my God, why? Oh, she's just, I just found her to be a, a very dislikable character. Mm. Really? Yes, yeah. I thought yeah. she was so amazing. I thought she was just hilarious. Yeah. I guess I just assumed that her role in the movie was the comic relief and I think mm. it was very effective. I struggled like you, Camille, with the concept of her being comic relief because... I don't know. He was going through these motions of hiding alcohol everywhere and finding it and drinking in this very joyful, gleeful way where I think normally when people are at that point of addiction or alcoholism, it's not joyful or gleeful at all anymore. She's interesting. So she gets home with presents and the girls are all downstairs except for Claire celebrating the holiday, giving Mrs. Mack this like nightdress that she hates. Claire is upstairs into her room and then this is where we get to the first murder. The cat Claude is in her room. He scurries away and then Claire starts to hear something in her closet and we see, which I think is just so terrifying, this breathing figure in cellophane basically Mm -hmm. in the closet. And there's something just so disturbing about someone being in the room with you without you knowing. I loved that scene so much because it really drove home this trope in horror movies of that moment for a character where they have to acknowledge the presence of something else with them or a sinking feeling in them that something is not quite right. And they have to acknowledge themselves like, okay, 
I have to figure this out and I'm either going to prove myself wrong or prove myself right that there is something else here with me. They have to explore it. I did not see it coming. I was just like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I really didn't see it coming. I thought it was so well done. And again, I just love that we don't see him. There's no, no opportunity for you to recognize what the right. terror really is. He's completely veiled throughout the whole thing. I think it's so interesting, this trope and moment that you're talking about and how it's evolved. Because when I watch older horror films, I'm like, get the fuck out of there. Yeah. Do not call names no, no. and walk towards yeah. your death. Yeah. And I love, I, I think about nope and I think about barbarian and stuff that's come out more recently I love the way that we've shifted that so much so now characters are like oh a basement I'm not gonna walk down I'm not stupid this film made me think a lot about that that scene where she's like walking towards the killer and trying to figure out who it is it's like leave your room there's people downstairs just get out of there nothing good is gonna come of the situation and then of course she gets murdered (laughs) she gets strangled to death and suffocated in that cellophane and then the whole rest of the movie we see the killer bring her up to the attic put her in a rocking chair in front of the window in the attic which i think is just so brilliant that to some extent for the rest of the movie they never find claire but she is in plain sight the whole time in this rocking chair Everything happens in the house. It's all in the house. From the first shot of the film, the killer is looking at the house, gets inside of it in the first maybe two minutes, doesn't leave. People are running around town, going to the police, doing all of this stuff. And it's just all happening in the same place. And nobody has any idea Even when the film has finished, nobody knows that all of this has happened right under their noses. Unknowingly to... Anyone else, Claire is now dead and in the attic. And then Peter calls the house, Jess's boyfriend. They agree to meet the following day around 2 p.m. He says, I love you. And she says, I know. How did you understand their relationship at this point of the movie? It's such a classic depiction of a relationship between a man and a woman, especially for this time period. As a woman who has dated men, I, of course, identify with her and think Peter is fucking awful. He is not thinking about her, only thinking about himself, disregarding what she's trying to say, centering himself, obsessed with himself, and his like fucking crap. Peter is just so emotionally immature and inept and completely... He's just so stupid. He's like, so stupid. The narcissism of him as a man in this movie, it, it's so aggravating. It's like kind of a relief when he dies. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, thank God. Like, at least he's not going to be terrorizing this poor woman until having a baby and like getting married. Let's actually jump to the following day when Jess tells Peter she's pregnant. I love it when he goes, you can't have an abortion. You haven't asked me yet. (laughs) I die. He is so excited about this baby, despite not caring about any other living thing. Oh my God. He's so excited about it in the context of his own life, right? In a self-centered, like, oh, I'll stop music and we'll just get married and we'll have a baby together. And it's because he's not great at music. Like, (laughs) he's just, oh, yes, okay, thank God. Like, I don't actually have to do this anymore. I can just use this as my excuse to not, and like completely just oblivious to the fact that it's something she has to go through. 
And he uses these textbook manipulation lines against her. And I think it's so clear that Jess has come to this conversation knowing that she needs to be a stone wall against him. Otherwise, he will manipulate her into mm -hmm. changing her mind. He says, like you said, Camille, he says, you can't make a decision like that. You haven't even asked me. <laughs> he asks her, don't you ever consider anyone other than yourself? Do you know how important this afternoon is to me? As though she can plan, yeah. she's, yeah. Can plan oh the pregnancy around his schedule. And then eventually, or very quickly in the conversation, when it's clear that she's not going to give him what he wants and he's going to need to strategize mm -hmm. better manipulation tactics, he tells her, why don't you just leave? As she's walking out, he says he's going to come over that night to talk to her around nine. I loved that moment when it was just like this. He was just like, I have all the power. I'm going to bully you and then I'm going to make you go. And then like a little whiny baby, I'm going to be like, but I'll see you tonight. It's just like, you, oh God. We oh, hate God. Peter. We really do. At least I really no, do. No, no, no. I see no, no utility, no redeeming qualities. An absolute tud, yeah. in my opinion. <laughs> So at the same time that conversation is happening, Claire's dad is waiting for her on campus. He's really disappointed in how provocative the house is. There are pictures of butts places and old ladies with their middle fingers up on the wall. He expresses his dissatisfaction to Mrs. Mack, who's very good at switching between this expression of womanhood that she knows is acceptable to this type of man and her regular crass way of being. I think what is so good about these scenes is they depict the generation that this movie is trying to revolt against, I think. And it comes out in the dad in that moment. But Mrs. Mack, what I appreciate so much about her, and I completely understand all the things you guys were saying about the complexity of her character and her just not being the comic relief, but I do appreciate that she is a woman who gets on board with this generation and their desire to just be very expressive in themselves. And I love that she's a character who defends that. It's interesting overall to think about the generational tension that this film mm -hmm. depicts and then to think about Mrs. Mack and Claire's father mm -hmm. and the way that they are of the same different. generation, but completely different. And there's so much tension between those two I characters. I love that she's just eye-rolling him all the time. Yeah. But yeah. I will say, I think Mrs. Mack is a little bit disparaging of them. She's very sweet to them when they're all together, right. but she does have that comment about these girls would hump the Leaning Tower of Pisa if they could get up there. <laughs> what I just appreciate about it is I don't think it's black and white. I don't think it's just this generation and then that generation. There's a gray area in between. And I think that's what she's occupies. She's this woman who has it both ways. She obviously judges them, but she also respects that they're, and maybe out of envy. I don't know. Maybe she's envious that they could be so free and she couldn't. Mr. Harrison, Phil, and Barb go to the police house to report Claire missing. They are trying to get answers. They speak to Nash, who is this very foolish police officer who's pretty incompetent. Ken is our hero detective. One thing that we find out during this visit to the police station is that we have this woman who is talking to Ken initially about her daughter, Janice going missing, who is 13 years old. We are introduced to this other outside kind of fear and threat there. I'm curious what you thought of the presence of this missing young girl, Janice. I kind of assumed that Billy was again the villain of that story too. I didn't understand really how they were connected. I guess I kind of thought initially that it was going to be like this distraction that preoccupies mm -hmm. so that there was this tension between competing priorities 
I wasn't really sure. I was actually going to ask you, Annika, what you made of I really went back and forth on my read of what is happening. There, I think, is one possible interpretation that Billy, the killer who is in the attic of this house, is the one who is committing all of the murders. He kills Janice. He kills everyone, obviously, inside of the sorority house. But that begs the question of when does he have a chance that day to leave the sorority house and come back? So I was leaning towards the idea that one of the lessons of this movie is that you want for there to be one culprit here. You want to be able to pin it all on one person. But really, this is more of a cultural issue Mm -hmm. of violence against women that is happening everywhere all the time all around them. You have these different levels of violence. And one of them is Peter choosing to try to hold Jess captive and have this baby that she doesn't want to have, knowing that she will have to give up her dreams if she does this, but pretending as though that is not the truth. And the fact that through that disregard for her personhood, she gets to a point where she can believe that this person who she has an intimate relationship with could commit this level of extreme violence against her friends and also could be harassing them in this way just goes to show that there are different degrees of toxic masculinity that all are born of the same seed of wanting to own and control women. And so my understanding of Janice a little bit was her presence here is pointing to a broader issue. I like that interpretation. One thing that came up too when I was looking into people's analysis and interpretation of the movie. So as you pointed out, Annika, it's a Canadian film. Bob Clark, though, is American and he studied in America. He moved to Canada and became a big component of the film industry there. They did try to make the movie set in America so that it would appeal to American audiences. But the funny thing is, in the thing that I watched about it, everybody who spoke about the movie was also Canadian and they were like, It's hilarious that they tried to make this movie seem American because in so many ways it is so Canadian. And the most obvious and blaring way is the way that they portray masculinity. It's so subtle. And apparently that's a big thing in Canadian portrayals of masculinity that they're not incredibly overt. I don't know if I think that the masculinity was subtle. The men are subtle in the way that they do not help anything. Yeah, Their existence is not productive. I think that's really more what they mean. What's so striking about all these men? They're just so useless. They literally cannot do anything that is helpful to any situation. Yeah, I do think that certainly sometimes American films of this time would fail to see or fail to feature the way that Peter's behavior is similarly scary and threatening as Billy's Mm -hmm. behavior. Speaking of Peter, we see him performing a mini recital. He's being really gross. He's sweating and just looks gross. And we are led to believe it didn't go well. Later, we see him with the piano and he smashes it with a, like, I don't even, was it like a mic stand, a pole, something like that? Yeah, I think so. Kiara was really disturbed by that. I was so disturbed. I couldn't handle that. I was so unsettled, so upset. I just couldn't believe that someone would do that to a piano. I was just (laughs) so mad about it. Just mortified. I denounce any person who would desire to trash a piano that way. They're precious instruments. In composing the movie, I think they did use a lot of 
sounds of a deconstructed piano. I wouldn't really have described any of this sound as music. I thought it was cool that they just used like a deconstructed piano. I thought that the sound design was so effective. Or I assume they mic'd Billy the Killer for a lot of breathing in it mm -hmm. that I really thought was very effective and cool. I agree. The breathing really got me. So then we go to dinner at the sorority house. Mr. Harrison is still there. Barb is sitting on the couch, extremely drunk. I think Barb is a really interesting, complex character because I think that it's clear that she is feeling a lot of guilt at this moment, but isn't able to identify it as guilt. So instead is on the offensive. Yeah. And they make her go to bed. I love a dinner table scene. It really felt like that was Barb's moment mm -hmm. as a character in this movie. And I completely agree with you. I thought that was great complexity revealed about her. Who is she saying that to? That stuff about couples having sex three days in a row, it's Claire's dad. Like that's who she's directing those comments towards. This man, as we've mentioned, represents this generation that's so judgmental about women's place and their function in society and in the world. Absolutely. And their limited or out of sight expression of sexuality. And here is Barb just standing over him at the dinner table, yelling at how she went to the zoo and watched these turtles have sex for three days in a row. I love that. Another great moment for the generational tension. Barb is sent to bed. And then Phil, Jess, and Chris, as well as Mr. Harrison, go out to a search party for Janice, the little girl that went missing. Mm -hmm. But of course, these people are going more to search for Claire. And then Mrs. Mack is left at home packing. Upstairs, we see Claude the cat licking Claire's dead body. The taxi <laughs> is outside. It's honking away. But then Mrs. Mack hears Claude the cat. And she eventually realizes he is in the attic. And so she climbs up. She <laughs> sees Claire. She is horrified. She turns around and then sees a man clutching a meat hook or a hook of some kind. He swings it at her. It attaches to her and then pulls her up into the attic where she perishes as well. I thought this scene was amazing in so many different ways. I get so stressed about Uber's waiting for me. <laughs> I will not call an Uber until I'm outside. So the biggest anxiety that I felt in this whole scene was this taxi honking outside. I was like, you just got to go get the, <laughs> that car is going to drive away without you. You just got to go out and get in the taxi. The way that it really set the scene to make you anxious was mm -hmm. really interesting. I was like, I don't care if she dies or not. I'm just this taxi <laughs> driver fucking had it with her. Yeah. And he really does his best to tick all of the boxes. He does go and knock on the door and try to see yeah. if anyone's inside and then eventually just leaves. I also loved this. Yeah, I think it was the thing that she gets hit in the face and hung with, I think, is like a pulley situation, mm -hmm. construction thing. Now, I don't know why my mind went to meat hook. <laughs> I think I know why I went to meat hook. <laughs> it was very similar to the Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre scene True. where they hang her on the meat hook. Yeah. And I was really thrilled not to have to see that happen on screen. <laughs> and again, it was very disturbing that it happened off screen because the meat hook death in Texas Chainsaw Massacre is just absolutely just so horrifying. I agree. So the killer kills Mrs. Mack. And then he has a panic attack where he's screaming and he's destroying the attic. He's having some sort of emotional reaction that I interpreted to be a recognition that he is out of control. 
to me in this moment, it became clear that this is not a killer who is necessarily intentionally planning on killing the next person, but he's rather someone who cannot stop killing. Yeah. And I think the fact that he keeps saying, help me on the phone really sends yeah. that message home. So this is another thing I really do appreciate about these older horror movies is how much they really let the villain become a character in the movie. There's someone who, it's a person who exhibits behaviors like, like you're describing Annika in the scene that are not beyond our understanding as the audience. We can look at that emotion and understand that it's an outburst from feeling rooted in another very human emotion. And I just think it's really fascinating that they actually leave so much room for the villain to be a character that's somewhat empathetic in these movies. I don't mean empathetic in, oh my God, I completely understand why he's like going around killing people. But it is, I think, good. And I enjoy the movies more when the character isn't just menacing. Like that's their only attribute. There's complexity to the person and the killer. And I think that's also brought out in the fact that the whole time that we're in the mind of the villain, it's all point of view shooting. We always see things from his perspective. When I think of the big slashers, I think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, Friday the 13th, and those villains all have something like a mask. They have something that kind of separates them from humanity in a way, like a physical kind of blockade. And this film, we don't see the killer's face at all, but we understand that if we were to see his face, he would likely just be a regular person. He's not obscuring his identity. He's not a physically a monster in, in the way that the other villains are, which I think allows also the killer to be a little bit more complex, especially because we never meet him. We don't actually know where all this trauma is coming from, what his backstory is specifically and it leaves a lot to the imagination to create that connection a little bit more. Why do they all have such terrible relationships with their moms? That's because people fucking hate women and hate <laughs> mommy. Mothers are very complicated in horror films. I think that if we look at Freud, right? If we look at a lot of the ideas about childhood and masculinity, and it's always the mom's fault in some capacity. The violence is always stemming from childhood and mothers being in some capacity, unable to, to bring up a normal child who doesn't kill everyone or doesn't have some deeply rooted mommy issue. It's so problematic. It's so interesting. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. I also find it interesting. And every time that the killer calls, it's, he doesn't speak in just one voice. He speaks in different (laughs) ones. It's him. And then the voice of a woman who seems to be berating him about his ability to take care of somebody else, just belittling him and berating him and making him feel useless and incapable. I feel like in horror movies, a lot of these male figures, male murder, fake monster figures, they offset their responsibility for being killers to their mother. You know, like it's a way to be like, oh, this wasn't my fault. My mom fucked me up. We go back to the search party. Janice is found. We don't see Janice. We just see the faces of the people looking at her, which Kiara, I think to your point, it is scarier what we imagine than what we see. I think it's so interesting that we don't see Janice. So we don't really know what manner she died in, what kind of position she's in, but based on their faces, it's really horrific. I think that was really smart on their part, actually, to let the audience be afraid of their own imagination. And I also wondered if part of it was because it was a child that was murdered. 
Yeah. I don't know if you can show yeah, a mutilated know. child in the same way you can show a mutilated adult. Jess gets back to the sorority house. As she's walking through the door, the phone is ringing. So she picks it up. It is the moaner. He says, he, as we mentioned, he says, oh, help me. Please stop me. Oh, God, please help me. Jess calls the police station. And we see someone walking down the stairs behind her. The person behind her is revealed to be Peter, and he announces that he is leaving the conservatory and that they are getting married. She's horrified. She asks him, and I think this is such a lovely moment. Do you remember when we first met? You told me about you wanting to be a concert pianist, how it was your greatest dream, and I told you about some of the things that I wanted to do too. I still want to do those things and you can't expect me to give up all of my ambitions because your plans have changed. And what I think is interesting is we know that his plans haven't changed and instead he just really like majorly fucked up this mm -hmm. recital. His dreams have already been killed. So he's acting like he's making a sacrifice when really he isn't. Yeah. This will benefit him. Exactly. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's his motivation from the get-go. I think he already knows he's going to fuck it up. And then he just lives through it. And then he is like, okay, for sure. Now I have a scapegoat. It's this baby. He keeps trying to say, no, like, I'm really such a good guy. I'm doing all of this to like make you a part of my like life and my equation. It's just fuck you and your generosity. You can take it elsewhere. Keep it to yourself. And in this like time, also the role of man in a family is generally disengaged mm -hmm. compared to the woman. So it's very much, oh, we'll have a baby and I'll have purpose, but I won't have necessarily duties related to this child. My wife is going to really be the caretaker mm -hmm. of the child. It'll just give me something to come home to at the end of the day. It'll make my life feel more full. Yeah. It's not like really a responsibility that they're going to take on. And he acts like it is though. He acts like it's going to be a shared thing and he's not going to have to mm -hmm. sacrifice all this mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. which he even says that. He tells her you can still do everything that you want to do and she knows that is absolutely not true and he should know that is not true as well mm -hmm. and then he crescendos <laughs> calls her a selfish bitch and then he says this line you talk about getting rid of the baby like having a wart removed and that comes back later on we will talk about that very shortly at the police station mr harrison overhears nash receive the phone call from Jess. He overhears Nash repeat the address back to her. And Mr. Harrison then is the one to sound the alarm and be like, are you not going to consider that like maybe these things are related, that we have people going missing and also these girls have been harassed with obscene phone calls because Nash on the phone is totally dismissing Jess, telling her it's not important. So they go back to the sorority house, Ken, Phil, and another officer, Graham. Jess and Phil show Ken Claire's room. He asks them if she drinks or has emotional problems. Jess and Phil say no. He asks, who was she seeing besides Chris Hayden? They say no one. Do you two think that Ken is a good character slash detective? I, I thought he was. I still think he's useless in the grand scheme of things. He is the only man in the movie that does get things done. And he reorients people around the right action. And he just gets people to pay attention to the right things. And I think he's useful in that respect. What I do appreciate about him is that I think he does genuinely care that these women are not harassed and are not terrorized anymore. So in those ways, I think he is good. But I do think he is still meant to fit into the overall theme, which is that the men in this movie are just ineffective. And so is he. 
but good intentioned, well intentioned detective, certainly. Yeah. 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 He's maybe our only good male character mm-hmm. who we can put any kind of trust in to get anything yeah. done in any capacity. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think he is well intentioned. I think that he is still a product of this culture. And I think that we see that in this moment when Graham, who is the officer tapping the phone, asks Jess if there's another phone in the house. And Jess starts to answer and say, Yeah. Mrs. Mack has a phone in her room, which would have given them some answers a little bit sooner. But Ken interrupts her and says, yeah, there's another phone, but it's a different number. So it's completely irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Ken then brings Phil and Jess to the door and he points outside and he says, see that like car right there outside. That is one of my men. He's going to be watching all night. So you'll be safe. Phil rolls her eyes and says, yeah, sure. Which is this an admission that these young women know that they're not really safe in these men's hands the way that the men really want them to believe they are. I think that comes out again in that moment when those two men who are doing the sweep outside come up to the door when Phil is in the kitchen or something and they knock on the door and they have this whole moment where the men are like, yeah, we're patrolling around. So don't be afraid of anything. We got you covered. Yeah. Don't worry. And it's again, one of those things where it's yeah. What? No, you don't. And they go in control here. I love it when they go, I'm, I would rather face the killer than the most die. I love that too. One of them is waving a shotgun around. Yeah. So then Ken leaves. Peter is creeping and watching the house from the outside, still like a little creepy weirdo. Jess is sitting downstairs waiting near the phone to see if anything happens. And then we see upstairs the killer enters Barb's room and looks down at her. We go back downstairs. We hear Barb gasping for air and Jess runs upstairs. They're talking and Barb says, I guess I had a nightmare. I dreamed a stranger was coming in my room. And I think this is just so terrifying because we can assume the stranger really is in her room. And this is another moment of Mm -hmm. Jess really being in danger without knowing it. Jess leaves the room There are Christmas carolers downstairs, little kids that Jess then goes and watches as Barb gets murdered in her room. Yeah. What did, so let's talk about this murder because it feels varied from the other murders to me. Yeah, it's longer. And even though we don't see her, we see her blood and it feels a lot more graphic. I love the stylistic nature of it. It feels very psycho. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's getting stabbed over and over again with this unicorn head, deep leaf, phallic. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. This glass figurine. It's like all around her in that room. I just thought that was a great touch. Something that kind of bothered me a little bit throughout the movie. There was this moaning and screaming that everybody kept acknowledging within the house. And there was always an explanation for it. It was like, oh, someone was sleeping. Maybe they were having a nightmare. Or like, oh, maybe they were fighting. And no one... Thanks to suspect mm-hmm. that like that means these phone calls are coming from within yeah. the house. But in this scene, I think that's really beautifully done that Jess is downstairs paying attention to these carolers and cannot hear Barb screaming yeah. and dying. <laughs> that's a major benefit of setting a horror movie in a sorority house is that a sorority house is this kind of like communally owned space where a lot of different people 
have access to it all the time. So they're kind of used to people coming and going and there being extra sounds. But yes, Kiara, to your point, I love the way that they find opportunities to have sounds downstairs while these murders are happening upstairs. They have Mm -hmm. Mrs. Matt come back and all of the girls celebrating and delighting and opening these presents as Claire is getting murdered. And then now we have these Christmas carolers as Barb is getting murdered. I love it. It's very well done. And then the phone rings inside. So Jess goes back in. She picks up the phone. It is the moaner. I feel like from here on out, when Jess answers the phone and the moaner is calling, it's that much more disturbing because the phone is being tapped. She is incentivized to have to stay on the phone. She doesn't really have the ability to hang it up when it gets too disturbing. It's this especially non-consensual experience she's having because she just has to stay in it. So this is the first of the calls where they are trying to trace it. And this is the call where the killer says the line, just like having a wart removed. And Jess says, oh my God, and hangs up. Yeah. Ken calls her then immediately and says, we didn't get him. There wasn't enough time. And then he asks her, when you said, oh my God, did you realize something? That's one thing I just like about Ken's character is that he does try to round out the loose ends. I do appreciate that he like picked up on the fact that she said, oh my God, and like it was an acknowledgement of something. Yeah. And he questioned it. I really do he is able to do that. Yeah. I agree, especially because we see Peter, when he's interacting with Jess, he is wholly incapable of actually like reading her and listening to her. So I do think that is an interesting moment of us seeing a man be very perceptive. Yeah, completely. Jess then goes and confides in Phil about the possibility of the killer being Peter. Phil is not convinced. She checks to make sure the cop is still outside. Then the phone rings again, and it is Peter this time. And he is now saying a lot of things that are very similar to what the killer said on the phone. He says, Mm -hmm. oh God, please help me. We can't kill the baby. Please, Jess. He's crying and begging her, don't hurt the baby. She says, stop this. It disconnects. Then we have Ken call back another time and really grill her about what that was about. Shares with him that she's pregnant. And I think he responds in a very positive way to her sharing this. He doesn't guilt her. He doesn't make any kind of moral comment on abortion. He recognizes that Peter's refusal to accept Jess's decision to abort the baby is this concerning sign of control. And then Jess realizes it couldn't be Peter because when he was sleeping upstairs, the killer called her downstairs. What did you guys think in terms of Peter being pulled out as a suspect, especially because as the audience, we know that the killer was in the house. So that doesn't like negate him being the killer for us, right? Yeah, I was very told Mm -hmm. on the time. The moment that made me feel like, oh no, wait, I actually don't think it could be him is when we do see the mother's eye behind the door. That for some reason just made me like, I don't know, I got snapped out of thinking it was Peter. I also, for whatever reason, never really believed that it was Peter. I still believed Peter to be a really bad person regardless. And I really appreciate that they did that. Yeah, me too. I agree. It's funny, even though he is eventually revealed not to be the killer, I still see him as equally a villain of the story. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. He's still perpetuating so much violence and horror. I almost hate him more than I hate Billy. That's not purely just motivated by him trashing a piano. It is motivated (laughs) by all these other things about his personality and his persona Mm -hmm. that I just find completely repulsive. Back at the sorority house, the phone rings again. Jess picks up. This is a really upsetting call for Jess. The caller is repeating, you fat pig, over and over again. Graham is running around the phone station and And he finds where the call is coming from. Nash then calls to tell Ken that the calls are coming from 6 Belmont Street. Ken says, you fucking idiot. It's not coming from 6 Belmont Street. That's where the calls are being received. And Nash then says, you don't get it. For real, the calls are coming from the house. Then Ken tries to call the policeman that's stationed outside of the house and his throat has been slit. He's dead. Any thoughts before we continue on? I just love it. The calls are coming from inside the house. It's this long, drawn-out moment that we've known about since literally the movie started. But watching the characters come to that realization all individually through humor and horror is just such a joy to watch. Nash is given the instruction by Ken to call the house and tell Jess to get out of the house and Ken instructs Nash, don't tell her the guy is in the house. Just tell her to put the phone down and walk out of the house. And then he says, if you screw this up, Nash, I'm going to kill you. Nash calls her and fucks it up royally. He does not do a good job. He fumbles the bag. He says, don't ask any questions, but put the phone down and leave the house. I don't see how he could have handled Like, I do get why she was like, what? Why? And also my friends are here and they're sleeping upstairs. It would be hard for me to just believe whatever the person on the phone was telling me understanding from the male detective and police point of views she's not going to question it a woman that's in crisis and in hysteria you can just tell her what to do telling somebody don't question this just do it and they'll abide i also think it should have been the detective he should have maybe said i don't know patch me through or something I think that because this is pre-cell phone and ken needed to just get to the house yeah. he wasn't near a rotary mm-hmm. phone he just had his radio yeah. transmitter and so he actually couldn't call her i do think that if nash had said it with more authority and had maintained his composure i think that perhaps Perhaps Jess would have left the house, but instead he calls, he says, who is this when she picks up the phone, which I just think is crazy. (laughs) And then when she says she's going to go get Phil and Barb, he then loses it and says, no, don't do that. And then he immediately says the caller is in the house. Putting Jess in this position where she has to decide whether to save herself or try to save her best friends who are upstairs. She grabs the little fire pokey thing from the fireplace and walks up the stairs, busts open Barb's door, and then we see Barb and Phil in Barb's bed dead together. I wasn't sure if there was some kind of sexual component, which I found very disturbing, especially because immediately after this, we see the eyeball through the crack in the door as Jess walks into this room and he says, don't you tell what we did, Agnes? No. Which... I just think yeah. is so creepy in this context. Mm-hmm. I thought he just did it because it it was a trap, right? If he assumed that people were going to come into this room, it was a way for him to just get the next person and the next person if he just stayed there behind the door. It's exactly what he did to Phil. I also think like the shock factor of you open the door and then two of your best friends are just dead on the bed mm-hmm. and drenched in blood. Holy shit. Not a great day. Yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. And I love the way that you 
describe that scene, Annika, where Jess is downstairs and I think you're completely right. She shouldn't have had to make that decision to choose between herself and her friends, but that's really what that scene is about. And mm. then there it is. It's just like they're already beyond saving. Yeah. And I think the close up we see on Jess's face when she recognizes that her friends are both dead in the bed was such a beautiful shot because I think that sometimes in horror movies, the factor of human loss is sometimes thrown to the side and we're only focused on the horror of murder as it relates to our immediate fear of losing our lives. But I think that when we look at Jess's face, we see her experience the terror of seeing people murdered, but also the intense grief of losing these two people that are so important to her. Like, I feel like it was just such an emotionally complex moment. And I loved that. She gets away and runs to the basement, locks herself in there. He tries to get through by banging on a bunch of times. We hear footsteps walking away and Jess goes further down into the basement and hides. Never go into the basement. I just love that scene. This poor woman has just been so traumatized, first of all, by seeing her friends killed. And now she's just completely and utterly trapped. And there's just this... Yeah terrifying and menacing threat outside, banging on the door in such a torrent. I thought that was a very effective climax in the movie. Yeah. And then to have him walk away and we don't know where he is. Exactly. Yeah. And then immediately after that, we start seeing through the basement windows, the outlines of a figure trying to look in, walking around the house. It is revealed that it's Peter. She looks terrified. We see him come closer and then we are back outside the cop cars are arriving and we hear screaming. Peter is dead on Jess's lap and Jess is passed out. The police then just assume Peter's the killer. It's over. I'm curious why we didn't see Peter die. I think it's so that they keep up the mystery about whether or not it's him, right? And it's a reason to question, right? Suddenly he's just showing up outside the house. Why on earth is he banging on the basement window and why does he know that she's down there? They all lead you to think he must have known because he was the guy doing all this. And for a moment, you don't know if she is also dead. We see yeah. both of the bodies lying on top of each other and I assumed that they were both dead. I also think obviously there are ways that they could have shown her killing him, keeping it in line with the rest of the murders of the film, but a lot of the violence is off camera. So I think mm -hmm. not showing his death does follow along yeah. with that trajectory. So they put Jess to bed. A doctor is with her. The police are with her. Chris, Claire's boyfriend, is there. The police are led to believe that the ordeal is over. But then there's this moment where Chris, Claire's boyfriend, says, has anyone notified Patrick Cornell? A policeman asks who. And then he says, Phil's boyfriend. And I think it's such a stunning moment of the men just continue to refocus the experience on the men and not the women. Mm -hmm. It's not about Phil being murdered, about Barb being murdered. It's about whether Phil's boyfriend has yet been involved in the conversation. There's something that was so shocking to me about that. Yeah. Um, Again, their ineptitude. I feel like that's always what they're alluding to with the way that the men are written in this movie. They're not reading the room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then Mr. Harrison goes into shock the doctor who was supposed to stay there with Jess shifts his focus onto him, says, we need to get him to the hospital. Help me get him out. Then everyone leaves the house to do different things. Someone turns the light out in 
Jess's room. And then we go from hearing a lot of sound in the house to complete silence. And I just have to say, if two of my friends had just gotten murdered in the house and then I woke up in the house completely alone, I would be pretty pissed. Of course. I just cannot imagine if you were a woman and you were in this situation where you had to take care of another woman who had just gone through this, where you you would ever even consider getting up and leaving that room. I just cannot imagine doing that. I was flabbergasted. (laughs) I was like, what is happening? I felt the same way. Hilarious. I would love to see this film from a scary movie kind of perspective where it's just exacerbating mm-hmm. the ineptitude of the male characters. All these murders have happened inside of the house. You still have two missing people that are unaccounted for. And then they just leave her because this man has fainted. Isn't there like a protocol here? The camera pans from Jess through the house to the attic door We hear again the killer singing that creepy nursery rhyme that he's been singing. So we know that indeed the killer has not been found. We slowly zoom out on the house. There's a police officer standing outside smoking. And then we hear the phone ring inside the house. And then for the whole credits, it's just ringing and ringing. I have goosebumps. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's so interesting about this film is a lot of these slasher movies end without the killer being murdered to leave space for sequels in whatever capacity, but there is a real sense of resolve in all of the other movies I can think of. The violence is over and you can breathe and there's none of that here. She's likely going to get murdered in the next 10 minutes. Yeah, And it's interesting to not have a sense of relief in any capacity at the end of the movie. Yeah. And just be sitting there with the credits rolling and being like, oh shit, not even this chapter has ended. I also think it's interesting that Jess is the character that survives. And I think, again, this kind of maybe has to do with Agnes and this killer's awareness that she's pregnant. Is that the reason that she's the person who survives? Is that that she's the one that's pregnant with the baby? I tend to think that if he had an opportunity to kill her, he would have done that already, just because she's the one that doesn't really go into a room alone by herself. She does escape him narrowly, but I don't know. Maybe he is oh. also fixated on that pregnancy because it's clear he overheard her conversation with Peter. I operate under the assumption that he's about to kill her. There's no sequel, is there? No, I think that there was a conversation about it, but the filmmakers were like, we don't have any intention. Oh. I think yeah. I read somewhere actually that whoever created Halloween, I cannot remember his name. Do either of you John know? Carpenter. Yeah. Yes, he went to them and asked if they were going to do a sequel and they said no and so then that's what halloween was born out of so well they did imagine the sequel to this movie being similar to the plot of halloween Mm -hmm. so billy is found institutionalized then he escapes and he comes back and Mm -hmm. keeps terrorizing this sorority house so the bones of the story were pretty much the same for the sequel, but obviously John Carpenter made yeah. all other stories. Yeah. So glad we're watching these in succession because yeah. it's just going to be so fun to have this context going into Halloween. Mm-hmm. One oh. question that I want to make sure we hit before we wrap up is yeah. we 
talk about how these films are always a reaction to fears of the time. I really love the call is coming from inside the house <laughs> trope because I think there is this really disturbing aspect of us wanting for the threat to be external to us, but really the, the threat being already ever present and here. Yeah. And I think that we talk about how there's the stranger danger fear. There's this depiction often of when women experience sexual violence, it being like the stranger in the alley, when really we know that the vast majority of sexual mm. assaults happen by like someone that these women know. And I think that in this moment, there is this shifting relationship between women and their own lives and their ability to be autonomous within their lives. And we're seeing that tension of these women contending with a lot of men around them that are uncomfortable with that progress and change. And ultimately, they do get to stop them from taking control over their own lives. But I'm curious what you two think. What is this movie exploring? I think that your observation is so good and I completely agree. There's this widespread understanding of a security in a nuclear family, in a housewife, in these very traditional puritanic values. And I think that this film is pushing back on that a little bit. The danger is at home. Even if Peter isn't the murderer, Peter is a fucking ticking time bomb and is with his words and actions creating violence and a lack of support in his partnership. The danger is within the nuclear family. The danger is within these institutions that women find safety or are supposed to find safety in. It's a violation of the home. It's a violation of the personal space. I like what you say about the stranger danger and sexual assault mindset too. These men that play such a large role in these women's lives, these policemen that are supposed to be protecting everybody and supposed to be competent. I think we can credit this movie with addressing a lot of different things. Obviously, there's the generational divide. I think there's certainly this thing about men and women and the lack of synchronicity and trust that exists between them. And then there's the lack of faith in institutions, which are certainly a good an important trope in a lot of horror movies, certainly the nuclear family, the fact that this takes place in a house that is a home to women. I think this aspect of the moaner calling the house frequently enough that there is a name for him among the women who live at this house before the movie even starts. This is just a little bit of extra context. This movie was supposed to be featured on an NC series called Saturday Night at the Movies in 1978 under the name Stranger in the House. But two weeks before it was supposed to premiere as part of that series, we later found out it was Ted Bundy, but there was a series of murders at a sorority house in Florida. And so the movie was pulled off the air because it too closely mirrored this real act of violence that was happening at the time. And I'm thinking about how now in this present moment, as we speak, we have this new wave of the same story with Brian Kohlberger at Idaho murdering these mm. women in their house. Unfortunately, this experience of young women living in a house together, being vulnerable to intense, specific, obsessive violence at the hand of men is this unfortunately time experience yeah, absolutely yeah yikes yikes indeed what a happy note 
I know. Thoughts before we go? Oh, I loved the set design, the oh, yeah. black and red curtains, yeah. the wallpaper. Uh -huh. Yeah. I, it was just beautiful. Like, yeah. Too. They've done such good jobs in both of these movies, dressing up these houses to be characters mm -hmm. in the movie, too. One thing I will say, too, I do so appreciate, like, the earnestness and the sincerity that's written into these characters and how much we really get to learn about what they value and like how they see like life and living. Yeah, I just appreciate that about both of these movies too. I agree with you, Kiara, that I think that something that is really, I've been thinking as we've been watching a few of these kind of earlier slasher films about why these movies feel so much, I don't know, scarier and better than a lot of movies that are, attempting a similar thing today. And I do think that the characters are super well fleshed out yeah. and feel yeah. identifiable as real people and not just as bodies to be brutalized. Yeah. I also think in more modern day horror, and I think that this probably started in, in the 90s, and we'll see it a little bit with some of the characters in Scream, they've expanded upon the stupidity of characters in horror movies, of the decisions that they make. There is a preservation of the simple-mindedness of some of the characters in these earlier horror movies where they go to the basement or they walk towards the killer or whatever. And we've exacerbated that today to make those characters be like, making those decisions because they're stupid instead of they're making those decisions out of a place of genuine curiosity or unawareness. If or, that makes sense. Or care. That's also, again, what mm -hmm. I love so much about mm -hmm. Jess running up the stairs. Annika, and you really did point that out to me. It's, she's conflicted. She's she's stuck in this moment where my two best friends are upstairs asleep. The killer is inside the house. Can yeah. I get them out too? So many of the choices they make are really motivated mm -hmm. by big decision points. I just appreciate that there's like a real logic to mm -hmm. all of it. It's a lot true and it's understandable. And I, I find it completely believable. It, it's not a cheap explanation yeah. or an intellectually lazy one. And just as Black Christmas reached its logical, non-intellectually lazy conclusion, so too does our episode of Black Christmas. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are so happy that you are here. If you do not already, please follow us on Instagram at WeAreScaredPod. If you have thoughts that you would like to share with us about this episode or others, please email us at we are scared pod at gmail.com. Have a lovely rest of your week. See you next time. Let's go, girls. <laughs>